Hello, and welcome to the sixth episode of Security Leaders, the podcast, where we speak to security managers, specialists, and professionals from across the security spectrum. My name is Neil Sutton, editor of Canadian Security Magazine. My guest this week is Lauren Lipkiss, a founding partner in the Toronto-based law firm Kestenberg Siegel Lipkiss LLP. Lauren practices across the nation in the area of intellectual property litigation. He is well known as the go-to expert in anti-piracy and anti-counterfeiting cases and has a track record of close cooperation with law enforcement, border services, customs officials, and organizations that protect the rights of copyright holders. For more than 25 years, Lauren and members of his firm have held an annual fraud and anti-counterfeiting conference in Toronto to educate security professionals in the latest developments in the field and spotlight the true costs of counterfeiting. I spoke to Lauren recently about his introduction to the anti-counterfeiting world and why he has never lost his passion for this field. Before my conversation with Lauren, here's a quick word from our sponsor, Commissioners. The biggest issues in terms of dealing with loss prevention, hiring the right people, and the manager being very much engaged with what's going on. The indications that there is a video monitoring matters. People are conscious of those things. Training staff to be vigilant and be switched on to the possibilities of those things happening there makes a big difference. Those people that you can count on become your best and most vigilant people to deal with shoplifters. I'm Stephen Grant, the Risk and Resilience Advisor for Commissioners. If you wish to learn more, check commissioners.ca. So thank you, Lauren, for joining us for this episode of uh, Security Leaders, the podcast. If you could just tell us a bit about what sparked your interest in intellectual property and anti-counterfeiting and, and go from there. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I was a commercial litigator. My, my practice was focused on a lot of different commercial litigation, but I really enjoyed injunctions and getting into court, helping someone that had an urgent problem, it needed immediate action. And I liked the kind of cases where you had to drop everything, get into court, and that was the challenge that really excited me. Even if I had to work through the night to be in court the next day, I found that exciting, and I guess my family was young enough at that time I was able to get away with it. Uh, But one day, a well-known clothing company here in the Toronto area, uh, who was a client of the firm, walked into the office and spoke to one of the partners and complained about the fact that their apparel, their their clothing was being, uh, he, he used the word knocked off, it was being counterfeited by people in flea markets around the Toronto area. They were copying the logos and the names and the trademarks, and was there anything he could do? So they They called me into the meeting, and as a result of that, we obtained what is called an Anton Pillar order, which is an order granted by a court which allows for someone to uh, be uh, told to uh, give up, surrender any of the evidence, which includes the counterfeit products, in respect of the court case that we issued against them. And that those documents and those garments or any counterfeit product was kept for the evidence in the court case. I went with an, we got the, we got the order. I went with an investigator the following weekend and we served dozens of counterfeiters uh, in, in the Southern Ontario area with these court orders. And we wound up going to court against dozens of them the following week. And after that, I was hooked. Um, I started trying to prevent uh, counterfeits uh, at at the flea market with, uh, at that time, they were selling four to five t-shirts for $10. And um, and that's how it got started. 
tell us about how this has changed for you over time. I know you've been involved in this branch of the law for more than two decades, but how has your interest grown and how has your interest changed over the years? Well, my first case that I talked about was 1985, believe it or not. And, you know, at that time, as I, as I said, I was dealing with, you know, let's say five T-shirts for 10 bucks at a flea market. And, and that, was, that was what happened right up until the early 1990s. But in the early 1990s, we began seeing something other than a product that was clearly a fake. You know, those, those first fakes were poor quality. You'd look at them and people knew that they were fake. Now we started seeing counterfeit labels, hang tags. They, they looked like the real deal. And then we started seeing a few years after that, leather goods, purses, watches, things like that. And then, and then we started seeing a few years later, um, I was contacted by some very large toy and novelty companies, and they were, they were involved in counterfeits of you name it. Whatever you could see in, in a legitimate store was being counterfeited. Toys, electronics, video games, all of those products were being counterfeited. And that was pretty sophisticated. And when I would show these products to people, they would go, what do you mean that's counterfeit? It looks identical to the real thing. But if we fast forward to today, 2020, uh, the amount, the, 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 the types of counterfeits are off the charts. Electrical products, cell phones, all the mobile accessories, uh, printer supplies like your inkjet cartridges, your toner cartridges. Uh, we've had cases involving beauty products here in the Toronto area and across the country. Shampoo, some of it with E. coli, hair treatments toothbrushes, we've had counterfeit liquor, batteries, cosmetics, I've even had counterfeit food. And I, I laughed when we started seeing counterfeit hockey sticks, but these hockey sticks, many of them were $400, $500, and uh, the fakes were going for $200 and $300 and being sold in stores or no longer in flea markets. Counterfeits are being sold in stores across the country, some of them in our best malls. And in fact, some of the largest big box retailers in, in the world have been caught with counterfeits, including in Canada. And uh, perfumes, automotive parts, especially in the last few years, we've started seeing a lot of automotive parts in Canada that are counterfeit. And, uh, you know, I'm fond of saying that there's uh, two categories we have now of counterfeits. Category one is anything and category two is everything. And so it has evolved to a great extent over the last uh, uh, few decades. So, Lauren, you started a conference, um, I think you're up to about 25 years now, but can you tell us about how that conference got started and how that's changed over the years? I know it's grown into quite the concern for your relationships with people like police and people with the CBSA and other uh, bodies and institutions that have a, a direct relationship to this field. Well, as it turned out, what, what happened was 25 years ago is there was a um, a sergeant in the, in the RCMP in Montreal who said to me, Lauren, we're doing a fair bit of uh, anti-counterfeiting work at that time. And is there anything you can do to help us identify if the product is real or if the product is counterfeit? And I said, well, sure. I said, you know, you can 
you can look at, I can get you some sample of real products and I, we certainly have a sample counterfeits and I could do a training. And he said, well, do you think you could take us to some of your clients? And I said, sure, I let me let me get back to you. And we had about, at that time, there was five, five or six brands with offices in the Toronto area. And I contacted them and they said, sure, we, we'd love to have them come. So he had about, I think it was four or five of them. They got in a car, they drove to Toronto, and uh, they arrived very early in the morning. And uh, we went to the first uh, company and we literally, we went down the highway from Etobicoke to downtown to Toronto to up in Markham. And we went to five different companies and each company put us in the boardroom. They brought authentic product. They brought counterfeit product. Uh, they showed the difference and the officers thought this was amazing. And so the next year I got a call um, and they said, you know, can we do this again and can we bring some other people? I said, sure. So now there was about 15 of them. And I said, well, we can't go to all the brands because not everybody had an office big enough for, for 15 to 20 people. And so we did the same thing. They did their, uh, what I'll call a dog and pony show. And the officers loved it. Then round about the third or fourth year, so many officers had found out about it that we had like 50 to 60 people wanting to come to this thing. and we tried to arrange it, but can you imagine in Toronto traffic trying to get from Etobicoke to the end of Scarborough to, to the east side and the west side of Markham in the same day? I mean, it's pretty tough. And having that many cars, we kept having, having to wait for uh, the vehicles to get there because people were having trouble because of the different routes they were taking. This is before Waze and before Google Maps and before cell phones and where everybody could communicate. And so it was a bit of a disaster. The following year, we rented some space in a, in a hotel. Now, I wasn't charging anybody for this training. This, I, I was just doing this because I, I, I thought it was something we should do. It was helping the police and it really wasn't costing anything other than my time. Uh, but now we had to rent a hotel and we had to give people coffee and uh, seemed uh, not very uh, neighborly not to have something if they're there all day uh, to give them to eat, etc. And so I went to the brands and said, uh, look, if you're interested, uh, and you want to help, maybe you could help pay for some of these things. And the brands were very eager to do so. Um, so over the years, we started getting people from different branches of law enforcement, the local police. Uh, we were getting uh, people from uh, other parts of Canada. And ultimately, we were getting officers from across the country. There was years, there were years when we had every province covered. And then in the early 2000s, I think it was about 2004, 2005, I got a call from the head of the Intellectual Property Rights Center in Washington, D.C., uh, who was, uh, they were working as the FBI and other branches of U.S. law enforcement. And he, in particular, was uh, the head of the Department of Homeland Security's anti-counterfeiting uh, uh, enforcement unit, whatever they were called at that time. And he said, we've heard about your conference and we'd like to come. And I go, but it's a Canadian conference. 
And he said to me, well, it's a Canadian conference, but it's a global problem. And uh, we'd like to receive some of this training and can we send some people? And I said, sure. I said, uh, would you like to talk? And he said, yeah, he would talk about the IPR center. And so he came. And I, I, I remember like yesterday, it was the second day of the conference. It was near the end of the day. And I had absolutely no clue if this was worthwhile for them. Absolutely none. And I said to him, do you think this has been of any benefit to you? And I, I won't use the vernacular he used in describing with great excitement uh, how much he appreciated the conference. But he told me that there was already over a dozen cases that the U.S. law enforcement people that he brought were speaking to Canadian law enforcement about because during breaks they were talking and it's hey do you know anything about this do you know anything about that all of a sudden cross-border anti-counterfeiting became a big thing and I'm really proud to tell you that today and every year since then we've had representatives from the U.S. government the U.S. consulate the IPR center the FBI the Department of Homeland Security they regularly attend they send people to speak they they've they've assisted in cases involving law enforcement and customs in both countries and it also expanded where i got a call from someone in the eu that they wanted to come and i got calls from people from south america and calls from people in mexico and at our last conferences we've had people from all of those countries so now we have 175, we cap it at 175 because we just don't have the space and <laughs> the ability to get it done with, the, with more than that many people. And so we have this room where we, we, we spend three days and three nights and we have law enforcement from different countries around the world, customs from different countries, lawyers, investigators, um, police officers that are dedicated to this kind of work, all sorts of government agencies, the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre, Canada Revenue Agency, the Competition Bureau, you name it, anybody involved in anti-counterfeiting. And we've had some of the, the best known uh, anti-counterfeiting organizations in the world like the Union des Union de Fabricants in France, the Inter, International Anti-Counterfeiting Coalition, the International Trademark Association, the uh, Global Anti-Counterfeiting Group. And these, are, these and others are organizations that are dedicated uh, in large part to dealing with the problem of counterfeits. And they come and they send people to learn and they speak to, and they help other people to learn. And of course, we've had representatives from numerous numerous uh, Canadian organizations like the Canadian Anti-Counterfeiting Network, of which I'm a founding member and the current chair of the uh, Education and Training Committee, uh, the Intellectual Property uh, Council. We've had um, We've had uh, people from the Intellectual Property Institute of Canada, the Canadian Bar Association. Um, we have a lot of buy-in from a lot of groups who want to learn about this counterfeiting problem. So the conference has expanded over the years, and I'm proud to say that uh, it has highlighted a lot of the counterfeiting issues and problems, not just in Canada, but elsewhere around the world. Lauren, I think the popular perception of counterfeiting is that it's perhaps a victimless crime, you know, what's the harm in, in buying a, a luxury bag that isn't, isn't genuine, the only one, you know, potentially losing out money is a large corporation that can afford it. 
But can you talk a bit about the real cost of counterfeiting and what people can do to get themselves more informed? Thank you for that question, especially, you know, because I, I get this all the time and I get from a lot of people that this is a victimless crime. Uh, but in fact, uh, the sale of counterfeits has become so lucrative that recent very respected studies, including one that came out by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, have concluded that the number two, and yes, the number two method of financing for organized crime, for terrorists, is the sale of counterfeit products. And I'm based in, in Toronto, and police have been involved in several cases that I'm aware of, that I was consulted on involving counterfeit consumer products being sold here in the Toronto area that were funding organized crime or terrorism. And we've had, at one of the cases involved the Peel, Peel Regional Police, a $14.5 million seizure of counterfeit leather jackets, all going to organized crime. Toronto Police Service uh, were involved in a multi-million dollar car theft and break, break and enter um, a series of robberies that they solved, in, which involved organized crime. It included millions of dollars in counterfeit clothing and several cases involving street gangs. So it's definitely not a victimless crime. And when someone buys a counterfeit, they have to, they have to remember that the person they bought it from, who may be a very nice person, other than the fact that they're selling a counterfeit, they may not even be aware that what they're selling is counterfeit. That if you go beyond that and you look at the other layers, they're supporting child labor. The, this child labor is being used in many illicit factories. They employ young children. There was one raid involving uh, a, a manufacturing facility with printer uh, cartridges and toner and ink cartridges, and they found someone, a young child, six, seven, eight years old, mixing a vat of chemicals. What's that all about? With no, no proper clothing and protection, and the counterfeiters very often use forced labor. Slave labor, these people are slaves. In one raid, there was a metal post in the embedded in concrete in the middle of the floor of the factory and there was a chain that was attached to the leg of one of the um, I believe to be the manager of the of the factory he wasn't allowed to go out his fact his children lived there with his wife and they weren't allowed to go out they they didn't have any schooling and if you, according to information from organizations like Interpol or the, the International Anti-Counterfeiting Coalition, the International Trademark Association and others, there's many factories and the distribution network for the counterfeiting that is controlled by organized crime and terrorists. And does anyone think that all the applicable taxes that every country charges, including Canada, are being paid by these counterfeiters? We had, one, we had a case in, in Vancouver years ago where we uh, went in and served a, an Anton Pillar order and obtained a lot of information, including information that the person that was being served had traveled abroad uh, several times over the course, every year for several years. And we found documentation evidencing that he was on welfare. And yet we also found evidence of millions of dollars of counterfeits in that in that uh, location, so victimless? No. Are they paying taxes? No. 
Are they doing their business legally? No. Are the products that they're manufacturing safe? No. My, my favorite example is uh, sunglasses. People rely on sunglasses because they have UV protection, UVA, UVB. People see the sticker UVA and B400. And the counterfeiters will very often have the sticker. Do you really think they take the time to put in the UV coating in the, in the counterfeit? They don't care. Very often these counterfeits have no protection. You would be better off squinting than ha using uh, many of the pairs of counterfeit sunglasses and on and on. You know, I mentioned before, uh, it was two tractor trailer loads of uh, well-known shampoo from two different companies. And it had, it was tested and found to have E. coli. Uh, the three quarters of a million toothbrushes taken off the market in Canada that had bristles uh, that were popping out causing uh, choking hazards. So these products that are being made are substandard and they're dangerous. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Lauren. Uh, we really appreciate, appreciate all your expertise and um, all the work you're doing to spotlight this continuing issue. Um, we, and we wish you continued success with your practice and of course with your conference. Well, thank you very much, Neil. Thank you to my guest, Lauren Lipkiss, and our podcast sponsor, Commissionaires. You can find more security-themed podcasts at CanadianSecurityMag.com. I'm Neil Sutton. Thanks for listening.